So welcome to episode 51 of the Cake Watch podcast um, with me, Chris Kendall. I am an EU official, um, been an EU official for ages, but doing this in a very, very much in a strictly personal capacity. And with me is not Steve, because Steve has got a tummy bug and can't leave bed, though he is tweeting, obviously, but um, he's not podcasting. But that's okay, because we have a guest this week, um, so that's very exciting. Guest is Peter Wilding. Uh, Peter, please introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Peter Wilding. Here I am in Brussels, been here for 12 years. I was um, chairman of British Influence, um, fighting for Britain to lead, not leave Europe. I've been Londoning and Brusselsing for many years. And um, I'm here with Chris now to go through all the. What's going to happen next? What is going to happen next? So, so Peter, the reason we've got you... Well, the reason we wanted to have you on is because uh, you're a Tory with lots of inside connections, but we can't say that anymore because you, you just before before we could finally get you on the podcast, you stopped being a Tory. And you're now... Change UK. That's right. Um, an actual cut tick tank candidate. A, a candidate in the West Midlands. I think, you know... It's curious, you know. There's a there's a there's a small cat in this room, who's you know amazingly knowledgeable about Brussels and and, and Eurosceptic matters. And is that a fellow flu from that Twitter? is that is a fellow flu from Twitter. Anyway, point being is we've been talking about this for the best part of nine years, and um, I've always since uh, I've been here as a Brit in Brussels, seen that the one wholesale gap in the whole picture of Britain is that Britain led Europe. But asinine politicians and wicked journalists simply didn't want to communicate that message. Didn't seem to didn't seem to fit the narrative that fact we we wanted to be losers. We wanted to be ruled. Well I did a couple of Even I, you know, Chris, I did some polling with you This was a while back now when I wanted to establish this message that Britain should be leading, not leaving Europe. And my intention was to go around all the politicians and say, look, just, you know, f- you know, release your inner Churchill. You know, you can be somebody who says, look, Britain's done great things in Europe, things like that, and we're leading it. Instead of saying, this is what Europe does for us, which was a no-no message. But we got this polling, you know, and it said 65% of the British public want Britain to play attacking, attractive continental football, great ideas. <laughs> and they're really pissed off by the fact that basically we've got 11 men in the penalty box who just <laughs> don't do anything at all. And people wanted a, you know, sort of a leadership message. But 61% of those people said, well, I do want that, but Britain is a loser. It's got no friends. It's hated by everybody. We've never achieved everything, anything, and bendy bananas and the rest of it. This total mismatch, mm. which I ended up calling a narcissistic victim syndrome. Yeah, yeah, a real psychological problem. Yeah, it's extremely weird, isn't it? it mm. It's it's a na- you know all all the national mental illnesses that we that we have as uh, that, that Brexit has has revealed is it's. You could you could make a career off it, couldn't you? Hmm. I suspect somebody will. Anyway, listen, listen. We've we've launched straight in. We need to do follow up first. Go ahead. <laughs> That's what we do. So, <clears throat> um, not much follow up. So the first was uh, Steve not being here. Well, that's fine. That's covered. Uh, get better soon, Steve. Um, the next is that um, 
I have to say sorry. I've been told by um, someone at home that I have to say sorry because she was listening to the podcast and said, and she she worked out forty minutes into it. She phoned me up and said, "You're you're eating Easter eggs." <laughs> and listener, she she was right. So I, I'm I'm uh, I'm not showing the audience respect because I'm sitting there snaffling Easter eggs while Steve was talking. But I mean, he was talking a lot, to be fair. And I was quite hungry. Um, so anyway, sorry, I'm not going to eat in the East. We instead, we're drinking a very, uh, very reasonable bottle of uh, red, aren't we? We are indeed. Yeah, cheers. 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 Oops. I'm going to spill it. Ah. Um, and then the, the second thing I have to do is to say sorry for yawning. Because <laughs> I yawn, all, I usually yawn all the way through podcasts. And it's, that's true. Uh, so I, I have got an excuse, which is that um, by the time... Steve's done all his parental stuff, um, and I've done my work stuff, and we're ready to record. It's way past my bedtime. And the corollary to this is that uh, I am currently in, in a permanent state of sleep deprivation um, due to various parental things going on in my life. So that so I, I apologise to listeners. Well, you're looking good at it. Well, thank you very much. So, I mean, that'll be the wine. Hmm. Anyway, there you go. That is the follow-up. Meaning we can dive straight in. So I, he, he consults notes. Right. So Peter, so I, th- I think there were four things that you and I could talk about that I want to talk about with you. Um, so we've, we've already couple, flagged a couple, but um, before we get into them, I want you to tell us the famous story about how you invented the word Brexit. Uh, that's right. <laughs> the bane of my life. You know, who would have ever thought? Here we were, sort of throwing ourselves into it, and the one thing that comes out of this, oh, you invented the word Brexit. Um, well, the story is is that it was obviously during the Greek Euro exit crisis. Grexit was the word coined, and it wasn't that difficult to say, oh, Grexit could be followed by another dirty word called Brexit. But what I think when... I wrote it, which was back in May 2012, and forgotten all about it. And then I got a call from the Oxford English Dictionary, and they say, oh, we're thinking of putting this word in the dictionary, it's word of the year, and you were the one who invented it. How do you feel about it? And, of course, as a passionate Remainer, gifting this toxic word to the campaign that eventually won, and never being able to get any royalty from the word at all... Or pleasure. Or pleasure, was, was striking. So that was the story, and then people have asked me, you know, so Brexit means Brexit. Well, you invented it. What, what does it mean? And I thought to myself, well, Brexit has become a dirty word, but it's also weird because it's associated with an era. Um, but most of all, it could have been, it could have meant something, you know, mm. we, nobody would have been talking about it anymore if Theresa May had said, right, okay. You voted to leave the European Union. We're going to leave the political institutions, but nobody voted to make themselves weaker or poorer, so we're going to stay in the single-minded customs union. Thank you very much. And when we're in there, we'll spend the next five years negotiating better arrangements. Thank you very much. Let's talk about something else. Mm. And the fact she decided, tell you what we're going to do, I'm going to challenge myself to a game of seven checkmates, which I have to get out of. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> yeah. No, it's... it's um, she, she's, she's, quite, she's quite a piece of work, isn't she? Mm. Yeah, she's a piece of work, but it's strange. It's like Mr. Burns in um, what well, was Mr. Burns in the comedy. 
Simpsons. Simpsons. And, you know, the, the most powerful people are uh, ultimately the people cringing in the corner of the room, frightened to death. And this is Theresa May. I mean, I've had the dubious privilege of meeting her three times. And she is somebody that you wouldn't stop by for. She has no small talk, no private conversation. There's a joke that at dinner, if you've got Theresa May there, even the cutlery make for the door. And it's the tragedy is that we... Britain usually gets blessed at the right time with the right leaders. Lloyd George, (laughs) Churchill, Thatcher, Pitt. Um, But this time we've just had the double whammy. The worst leaders for the times have cropped up. And she is one of them. Yeah, I know. It's... it's but the, uh, it does bespeak um, a systematic problem in our politics, which no doubt you'll talk about when, it, when, we, when we start talking about um, Change UK. But we seem to have a systemic problem in British politics, which is that we no longer attract, it no longer attracts the best talent in the generation. So the people that went into politics and made it, I mean, it's not that politics doesn't attract people who are really talented, because it clearly does. I mean, there are talented politicians in all parties, Mm. but they're not the ones who are making the career. They're not the ones who are getting to the top. Something's happened in politics that means the the, the qualities that you need to make it in British politics are not the qualities that you need to be a good politician or to be a good leader. Yeah. I mean, when I joined the Tory party in 1979 I went to an AGM there were 400 people there packed out everybody in charge were former army officers and there I was age of 16 and the, and the chairman said to his colleague says well 6th of June today isn't it we were on the beaches in Normandy and the point is is that the Tory party has merely been a very ugly bit of theatre costume which was inhabited by a series of uh, influences. So you had the aristocrats, then you had the officer class, then you had the garagists of Steve Norris, and then the arrivists came along of who attached themselves to Cameron. And now the party has essentially been seized by the people who made the jam at the jumble sales mm. on a Saturday. That is the voice of you know, a Tory party which was or always um, respectful to those new class of people from officers to arrivists. Now they have no respect. And so you have a Tory party which is, after 97, when they had no seats in Wales or Scotland, always going to move down an English nationalist direction. It's taken a long time. And then you had that death rattle of liberal conservatism under, under David Cameron. Mm. Destroyed by his own mm. lack of imagination and mm. competence. So, um, you know, the people who are in politics today, I still had respect for until two or three of my Member of Parliament friends were calling me two years after the referendum saying, what's the single market? So, two years after the referendum, yeah. Members of Parliament in the governing party whose sole policy plank was delivering Brexit, delivering departure from the EU, negotiating it, they were asking you, what's the single market? Yes. 
<coughs> Absolutely. Hmm. And um, the best, last, like all uh, conviction, and the worst are full of passionate intensity. And my favourite line. It's a beautiful, it's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, and it's all it's about this time. Hmm. The answer to your question is, I was a candidate for the new Cameron Beautiful Sexy Tory Party in 2000, and started in 2001, set up the policy exchange think tank, which was trying to create a new modernising message for Tories. And um, it was doable, hmm. but the imagination lacking at the heart of Cameron and his... I mean, people went to Cameron and Osborne because they wanted... They'd had David Davis, and these people were tawdry, ugly, and awkward. Hmm. Let's go for the toffs. They mm. always ran the party. They must know mm. what they're doing. And look at them. These, these are the, the Dianification of society meant that the, the Aristos were no longer non-you. The Aristos were sexy and should be leading political parties again. <laughs> and that was the idea. And then you suddenly realise that this great education led... To, I mean, I remember going to Cameron with that opinion polling that I talked about earlier on. And I said to him, you could be a Churchill here. You know, you just have to stand up and say, I want Britain to lead in Europe. I am going to take no quarter. That's what we're all about, blah, blah, blah. And he said, it's too late. We haven't had time to roll the pitch. And anyway, it's about tactics, not strategy now. And fear always wins. Wow. What did he say yesterday? He said um, it was a good thing that Brexit that the referendum had killed the issue. Didn't he say that? He did, did say that originally. Yeah, yeah, I did he said it yesterday, didn't he? Well, if he said that yesterday, he's more deluded than Well, he said it yesterday. I, I, I tweeted, I haven't been looking at Twitter today because of Game of Thrones. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to see any spoilers. Mm. Don't spoil it. Um, what did I hear? Um, quick it's pause while I look for the tweet. It's kind of, whatever he said, he's irrelevant. He's like Stanley Baldwin. Well, after 1937, this is a man who's so patently <laughs> failed. Uh, all he sought to do with the referendum, which, of course, he was the only man left who said, no, I'm going to go for this. Mm. Osborne said no. His pollster, Lord Cooper of Windrush, said no. Here we go. David Cameron, Brexit vote ended a poisoning of UK politics. <laughs> You're right, the 28th of April. Well, he's got, probably got paid about £125,000 for that speech in which he said that. A hundred and something large amounts of thousands of pounds to um, pursue his um, personal quest for self-absolution. Yes, well, I suppose it will be that sort of like... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to see. I mean, Cameron's whole experiment is dead. <clears throat> So his strategy obviously completely fails. But he and May's sole objective is to keep what is the Conservative Party together. Never has it been more challenged. And what I see, which hasn't been sort of discussed too much at the moment, is that we're moving towards Halloween. It'll chug along in its normal way, then it'll be crisis. But it won't be because the Tories will be demolished in two elections in the next four weeks. And just like 1989 and the failure of the poll tax and the Tories losing huge in council elections, the pressure on members of parliament now from their 
activist is intense. Get rid of this woman. Put Boris in. Uh, let's crown a new candidate, uh, prime minister at the party conference. Let's go for no deal. And I think uh, you know, Far I don't think Farage will do as well as currently expected because it's a, it's a little bit of a, you know, speaking too early. But the Tory party will panic, and Boris will be elected, and then twenty or thirty Tory MPs will say no way. Then there will potentially could be a vote of no confidence table by Labour, bring down the government. And then two weeks of potentially a sort of national government. You know, that's, that's why you think this is all heading? I think it's heading either to that or a general election in October. Yeah. Um, so you, you think it's unlikely that we'll get to the October deadline, to the Halloween deadline, with the status quo? I think on. May will have gone by um, to enable a two or three month election period for the party conference she has nothing left she's, she's had nothing left for the best part of three or four months but she really hasn't got anything left now and at its heart the Tory party wants to become the English Nationalist Party that it's always does it but at which on. heart it's got several hearts isn't it ah yes but the, you know, effectively the one in control so you've got uh, increasing numbers of um, you know the, the membership is hard Brexit yeah its media champions are hard Brexit. Its money, such as it has at the moment, is hard Brexit. Well, okay, so okay, so this is one of the reasons why I've been wanting to get you on to talk to you because, so you're now an ex-Tory, but the Tory that you were, um, there were lots of you. I mean, you were the you were the Tory party that. Elected Thatcher, I think. Um, you were the uh, One Nation. I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I'm making yeah. all sorts of assumptions about you. You were the One Nation, <clears throat> um, strong economic leadership, sound economic management, um, Britain uh, assuming global responsibilities, the kind of Churchillian, you know. We're going to project our values globally. Um, it's not incompatible with with, with 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 nationalism, but a much more confident and sort of. I mean, I'm speaking as a non-Tory. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, where do all those people go? And we've had Garvin. I mean, the other Tory we've had on is Garvin, yeah. uh, who 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 I think comes from a similar school. Now, um, you've 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 torn up your membership card. You've walked away. There must be surely. Many. I mean, that's a large constituency there. Well, it was, it was demolished in the 2017 election. So London's seats were swept away, which had hitherto had reasonable Tory majorities. That attempt at liberal conservatism had succeeded, but in its key redoubts, it was demolished. Look, I was on the... Uh, you know, I was, I was on a... T radio show with Farage and Farage is exactly the same age as me and was a Tory and I feel I know where Farage comes from because I was the guy in, in, at the age of 15 in Liverpool you know going around this city which used to be the, the best city in the world now full of potholes and bomb sites and decline and fall and the whole 
my God, this used to be a great country. Liverpool was my symbolic look at it. And look at it now. The smell of beer hops, corrupt council led by Derek Hatton and mm. um, white flight off to the golf clubs of Southport. And I wanted to change that. And the Falklands War was my 18-year-old apotheosis. I said, my God, there's nothing I could have wanted more than to see mm. Britain. You know, the empire strikes back, I think, said the Washington Post. And that was patriotism, not nationalism, firstly. And secondly, it liberated a sense of frustration and the hatred of decline that drove quite a lot of hmm. young Tories like me into the party yeah. of Thatcher. But now, of course, the tragedy is... The, 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 what's lovely about you know, living a bit is that you understand that political eras last about 30 years. Hmm. And the 70s was the fag end of that social democratic period. And then we had the liberal internationalism of Thatcher Reagan. But what started brilliantly ends up, you know, hubristically in Nemesis. And you've got, mm. you know, it's the Big Bang ended with the Big Crash. The Falklands ended in a wreck. Mm. You know, the Olympics ended up with Brexit. Mm. And you had a systemic failure to deliver a grand strategy. Hmm. That's what killed me about all of this when I talk about the MP who didn't know the difference between the single market and the customs union two years on. Yeah. And the mixture of arrogance and ignorance of these people at the heart of a political media complex where, you know, friends of mine who are MPs who have led regiments in combat or businesses end up, after the political process of being an MP, as shadows their former self. They're frightened to death of their career being ruined by the Daily Mail, and they have no friends. Mm. And so, in order to give them courage, they have journalists saying, give us some stuff, we'll get, you know, mm. this, happened, this has happened recently to some friends of mine, particularly those who are looking for leadership options. It's a terrible environment mm. to create any long-term thinking. Mm. Yeah. And you know what? They yeah. don't have any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, something that I've always struggled with, I mean, where where do you get that kind of long-term, long-term strategic thinking in, um, in, a, in a representative modern democracy where you've got people going back to the polls every... Especially where you've got a winner-takes-all kind of system such as we have in the UK... I mean, you could, you could say that, you know, maybe some other countries, you know, you look at the Germans, you know, the CDU can more or less count on being in government as a, co as a senior coalition partner. Well, maybe they can't, I don't know. But, I mean, there's, there's, there's more scope for long-term strategic thinking maybe than there is in the UK where it really is all about winning the next election. And if you don't win the next election, then pff, it doesn't matter. yeah. The problem, as a diplomat said to me, with Britain and Europe, is that the problem was that no party had any unity on the subject. Mm. Mm. And so there was consistent drift. Mm. But I, I try and put it down to something a little bit deeper. And I was mentioning this thing about eras ending after 30 years. And what's interesting is that there's always some other concept or ideology to cut the slack mm. take up social democracy fails this is the future you know 19th century liberalism now we are in this Gramscian period you know the old is dying and the new is yet unborn but mm. what we have I've been trying to think about what is the 
battle going on right now, mm. which you know, Britain is pal- palpably losing and not going to grips mm. with. And there was, um, there is an American professor called Philip Bobbitt who wrote a book about 2003 called The Shield of Achilles. And what he was trying to do in this book is to say, look, every hundred years, an er- you know, a, a, a period changes where you're going to have a battle about what the state does. And we're in that battle now. Now, the nation state, which is what all of us grew up with, and the whole Brexit concept was a kind of nostalgia. Let's get back to the period of the nation state. When the nation state had one objective, which was to increase the welfare of the public, Mm. and it did that because it could control capital, media, and law. Mm. Totally. So no money could escape the country, etc., etc. You know, the information you got was from two or three barons who were in hock with the government, and you know the BBC and something. You know. Now, that what Bobbitt said is the nation state ha- is coming to an end, and that is because the purpose of government is no longer able to guarantee the welfare of the public. It's too expensive because they've lost control of money and things like that. The job of the state is to increase opportunity. And the battle we're going through right now is the nation-state had a war between liberal democracy, communism, fascism, and liberal democracy won. And now we have a battle over who controls capitalism. Is it mercantilist capitalists like China? Is it entrepreneurial capitalists like Singapore? Or is it managerial capitalists like Europe? And Britain says... I don't know. <laughs> and it's battling between, I want to be an entrepreneurial capitalist Singapore, but I don't want to leave this managerial capitalist organisation, which is much cleverer. And we're up against these mercantilist capitalists like China, and we're too small to deal with it. And there's nobody who has any answer to that. I'm, I'm, I'm instinctively sceptical when it comes to the... I mean, it seems to me to be classic pattern recognition. I mean, I'm instinctively sceptical when it comes to these um, sort of rather sort of pat academic um, ways of imposing pattern, imposing um, order upon mm. chaos and trying to yeah, yeah, sure. pull out these... But I mean, there, I mean, there's all sorts of interesting... There's, I mean, we're clearly going through a massive system change... Um, and there was a did you see this morning um, a, a tweet went viral um, with a recording of James Burke do you remember James Burke oh yes did you see it I did see that I mean you know James Burke was an, I don't know what happened to him because he was such an he's amazing he's still alive he's 82 years of age I mean, but he hasn't been on telly for about 30 no. years which is an outrage because he was a such a good broadcaster he was walking around some rockscape in, in typical Himalayas, 70s Brown study yeah. stuff talking about the internet is going to go and tra- totally it's change. going to completely change politics. Yeah. It was incredible. It was 1977 yeah. or something. Like that. So that's James Burke, who's now in his 80s. Yeah. Who 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 no, was a, was a, a, a seer. Somebody was calling him, and it's true. Then you've got um, at the other end of the uh, of the generational scale, you've got somebody um, who I was very fortunate to meet recently, Jamie Suskind. Yes. Um, also, you know, doing some really interesting thinking and writing about the impact of um, the internet 
um, on democracy and, and 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 how it's simply shaking up all these. There are lots and different. There are lots and lots of different ways of um, trying to impose some kind of pattern and some kind of order on this chaos. I mean, we'll see what's what what comes out in the sift. But the, the reality is that um, we have to we have to understand that each era. I mean, it's systemic, but not. Um, a dogma you know you have the ability of people to ex- you know, propagate information from pamphlets in the princely states to the internet now and you know then the big battle was over family inheritance of, of land and now it's about who controls data it's almost saying that the same things recur and what Bobbitt said, of course, all of these eras end up with an epochal war which, change, which <laughs> oh, yeah. changes the way um, and it and it and it does, but what's interesting about it, the war that is un, that's going on right now, which is essentially a battle between you know sort of low level warfare that one is dealing with <coughs> sort of currently with the Mueller inquiry, you know, it's just a new way of looking at how states interact, and I think we've got to be alive to that. And your point, the question is. There's not enough deep thinking about actually what is actually happening. So Boris Johnson is still trying to play a 19th century pandemic, you know, in a world where that is not required. No, I mean, I... I, um, When I was a student, you know, I was really energised by two things. One was the environment. Mm. Um, And then the other thing was Europe. And the Europe... And, and they, they, they came together. I mean, I, I saw I saw how much more seriously Germany took environmental issues than the UK at the time, when, when I was a teenager. Um, and I saw where this was heading, or I thought I did. Um, and I, I, I thought, you know what, the only, the only way that we can really tackle this seriously, meaningfully, is, is, is if we move beyond the nation-state and look at first regional and then global federalism, um, uh, which is still how I feel, actually. I still feel that way, and it's still what what motivates me. I just feel a lot more, well, cynical. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I, I don't feel particularly optimistic when I look back at the last 30 to 40 years and, and where, where things have gone. Um, I look at, I look at, you know, I look at Greta Thunberg and young people like that, and I'm thinking, you know, well, yeah, we need we need them. Yeah. Um, but you know that 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 was what that was what lit a fire under me when it came to Europe. That's what made me think. You know, um, yeah, the nation state is no longer match fit. This is not this is not where we want to be. Um, by the time I hit my fifties, yeah. uh, well, I've hit my fifties, yeah. and here we are. And um, but when you think about it, we're in. I mean, Europe had. A, you know, has a ring of fire about it. I mean, the whole around it. The whole point about you know the soft power of Europe was to avoid hard mm. power consequences mm. by spreading the value system to happily mm. uh, receptive states. Yeah. And you know that's a Joseph Nye philosophy of the 1990s, and to an extent it works. And what we're seeing is the you know the revival of hard power because a liberal international regime mm. has lost its leadership positions and it's and it, and it's and because of Iraq and Afghanistan it's lost its will to lead yeah and yeah. yeah and the curious thing about all these great empires is that 
they reach the apotheosis and they're dead within a short period yeah. of time. It just yeah. goes quite quickly. No, you're right. You're right. That's yeah. the, you know, as a student of um, ancient history, that always strikes me is that we talk about the ancient Greeks and we talk about the ancient Romans and we talk about the Persians and we talk. But when you actually look at the bit that we want to talk about, the bit where um, they really were this sort of, they really did have a golden age. Very short. Yeah. We're talking about 30, 40 years. Century tops. Really, not very long at all. Well, the Persian Empire was, you know, the best in the world and, you know, reconquered Egypt and then 10 years later it had been completely crucified by Alexander. Yeah, and, and Athens too. Athens yeah. hit, hit, hit its sort of high, high watermark around 450 and within 40 years it was gone. And this is what I said in, you know, the, 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 the sunny land, uplands of Clacton-on-Sea, just at the referendum, talking to passionate people who said, I don't want to be a star in anybody else's flag. Hmm. And I said, <clears throat> be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Because as we're seeing now, you know, the 19th century British state uh, is collapsing. Hmm. And, uh, you know, by its own English so-called protectors. Mm. And I said, be careful what you wish for, because Northern Ireland will have a border poll, and this Brexit will be the greatest push for Scottish independence over the next five or ten years. Mm. And what's striking is that Whitehall and Westminster are now led by people who are, you know, fiddling whilst Rome is burning. Yeah, yeah. It's bizarre, the ignorance and the heart of it, there was a Labour MP, Rupa Hack, who was interviewed on mm. Adam Bolton, who said when she went to see Theresa May in a one-to-one and said, why don't you just give a referendum? Yeah. And she went and banged her head against, against the table to Theresa yeah. May. Um, usually, this crisis would have ended with a general election or, in 1931, a national government. Yeah. So why, when these yeah. parties are... You know, populated by you know Colin and his dog Alan. Yeah. Can <laughs> can what? what is there no flexibility to deal with this situation? Well, it's because of this goddamn referendum and this this mandate that the government thinks it has. I mean, she look at her. Look how we look at our look at look at our waveform. Look at the spikes in our yes. waveform. We get when we get ranty. She is probably where that is. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got this minority flipping government led by somebody who has by any definition failed yeah. to wit to you know she's utterly failed and yet she's just simply unflushable because it's like you know I have a I have a mandate I have a mission and you know I'm going to burn this place down before I relinquish that you know oh, yeah. and it, it's so unbelievably it, the tunnel vision is just very difficult to comprehend and very difficult to get one's head around but when you think about it if you don't see it from her point of view, if you want to keep the Tory party together and your concept is duty and you must deliver this Brexit, this all makes perfect sense. Even if the Conservative Party is still united with Boris Johnson in power, pursuing a hard Brexit, that's fine by me, says Theresa May. Um, And it's lucky that we have this lunatic in charge because, as I said earlier on, Otherwise, Brexit would have been done as us, and, we, and we'd have been out of that by <laughs> that, now. Well, that, that's true. That, that is, that, that's true. 
<laughs> I can't argue with that. That's true. Um, or, or something else would have happened. But yeah, no, you're right. Um, but maybe then that wouldn't... Well, I mean, again, with my EU hat on, maybe that wouldn't be such a terrible thing. Um, but, um, you know, a nice soft Brexit for, for everybody else to be able to carry on. But no, you're right, you're right. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people. I, I want the UK to remain, so... Yeah. Mm. But for Britain, it's a real killer. In this book here... It's wait, 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 wait. Oh, yeah. Watch, which book? Tell, tell us about this book. Well, this book. is a book I wrote a couple of years this ago. Is, I feel like Oprah. <laughs> what next? <laughs> Please. The future in Europe. Pimp because I was really thinking, because, you know, the difference between sort of the way I looked at it and the campaigns, who were, which, was, which was clearly very tribal, was that if you voted leave or remain, you didn't want to make your country weaker, poorer, or smaller on the world stage. Very few did. They had different rationales for reasoning, reasoning it out. But there was a unifying concept, but like a civil war, two different answers. Is how do we make Britain great again? That was at the heart of the, the, the lever horror about where Britain had gone. So the, the view is, I went back and took a look at what was a you know, British foreign policy over... You know, you used to have a history lessons, you know, discuss the, uh, the, the successes and failures of Lord Palmerston's foreign policy, you know. The foreign policy since the war has been quite the most Monty Python <laughs> effort of a, a powerful political unit, the United Kingdom, as I've ever seen. I mean, Churchill started the ball rolling and said, look, the future is we have to be at the centre of three concentric circles, the English-speaking world, the United States and Europe. That's it. And he created the Council of Europe to do that. And then... The guy who drank the Kool-Aid was Ernest Bevan, who said, no, no, this is what we're going to do. We have the Council of Europe leading Europe. We have NATO with the United States. And we have this thing called the Third Force, which is him in Africa. His view is we create social democratic Africa with the French. And so we have this space, continental space, where we lead as Europeans. But the guy, you know, who needs a bullet in the head is Eden, who stopped Churchill going down the European route in the 50s because the Foreign Office and to an extent the Treasury believed the future was the Empire still. Bingo, Suez comes up. Still this, you know, problem with the destiny. I mean, if, if the Messina Conference had taken place a month after Suez, we'd have been a different place mm. completely <laughs> now. Mm. The fact it was before yeah. is a problem. But nobody realises this, but in the 80s, Thatcher and Howe almost reached the apotheosis of British power in Europe. Mm. You know, total agreement of the single market. And then, in 87, they proposed a joint foreign and defence policy. Mm. And the only thing that stopped that progress was the fall of the Berlin Wall mm. and different reactions to how to contain Germany. Otherwise, Thatcher and Howe were on course to have... You know, Britain, soft and hard power encompassed in Europe. Hmm. What a tragedy. God. <clears throat> and this, this is, do you know, it, 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 it's, the, it's the historical perspective that... But I, I feel torn. I mean, on the one hand, you look at, you look at many of the worst um, Brexiters and... and, and, and and the worst commentators and they're historians and they're historians because they cherry pick history or they want to they, they take history and they want to um, they use history to deliver their narrative or to frame their narrative on the other hand 
<clears throat> you, you, you need this history. You need this historical perspective. You can't just leap in with the snapshot of wherever it is that you, you know, as it as things were on, I don't know, the the first of January twenty ten, for example. Mm. You've got to have that well, historical that, that, perspective. That, that's a grand strategy, and the one thing the United Kingdom has signally failed to do is to create a grand strategy strategy for itself, which the French certainly did when De Gaulle came to power in fifty eight, and. The tragedy is straight in our eyes with the fact that this Empire 2.0 was Europe, as the French saw it. And after the referendum, you know, let's just move on a bit, otherwise we'll be talking ancient history again. After the referendum, this book said, look, if we are going to leave the political institutions of the European Union, then Britain's destiny is to lead in the single market and that would be the European economic area, and to look at the treaty there in order to create a free trade zone within the single market and use it as a diplomatic leverage. I mean, this is only on the principle that the United Kingdom said we're leaving the EU, but we're not leaving Europe. So we're not leaving Europe. What are we going to do? We've got parliamentary representatives in NATO. And the fact is the Foreign Office on nobody can, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time on mm. this one. Mm. How do we create influence? Well, I mean, we, 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 yeah, this is something that Steve and I have discussed very often, which is that you don't, you know, it, it is, well, we'll come to this when we talk about Change UK, but I mean, you, you don't create influence by um, burning your bridges, by throwing your toys out of the pram, by being the person... Who, who who shits on the floor and leaves it to other people to tie to to, to yeah. wipe up? So um, no, I mean they're, they're, we 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 we've busily burned all our influence, and we're now, we're now in, we're now looking at you know, what next. The sequel to this has to be how do we move from here to build sufficient capital so that we can start thinking about influencing, and then what do we influence? Yeah, you see, nations go through their crises regularly and the one thing you know first impressions count in personal relations but nations do have the ability to change their whole zeitgeist and the way they impress their partners quite quickly in the sense that look at the united kingdom in 1997 it was basically a joke didn't take too long for tony blair to get the wind behind his sails and the sam mallow agreements thing you know a change of strategy yeah, yeah. No, that, that, okay, that's a fair point. What you can't do is pretend that none of that ever happened. <laughs> so you can you can you can turn turn things round, but you can't pretend that things didn't happen. Yeah, but I tell you what, I think will happen in order to make that easier is that you won't have a new prime minister in the Conservative Party in five years' time turning up and saying, "I'm terribly sorry, let's have a cup of tea and not talk about it." I think the political system in the United Kingdom will change, well, and. You know, we're living, you know, it's a mice and vase we're carrying in this, you know, awful crisis where Britain is, autumn, you know, is, is, as somebody said, you know, has decided to commit suicide but still doesn't know how. Mm. And it is strange that what has been revealed is the, the damage to our reputation mm. is that the the true problem is the things that people thought were really strong have proved terribly mm. weak. You know, executive, legislature, media, 
the so-called pragmatic intelligence of the British people, mm. the unity of the state, all of these, oh my God. Mm. And the tragedy for the UK is that there is no easy answer to bring those things together. Yeah. Simon Stylite, friend of the podcast, the columnist, he, he did a, a mammoth... Who's the American guy that does those sort of 999 thread tweets about... Um, Seth Abramson. Yeah, that's him, yeah. Well, um, si- um, Simon or Simeon um, is, is our Seth Abramson, and he's done a, uh, a 60-tweet thread. But his 59th tweet was an absolute corker, where he said, um, however we thought we may have been, stable, reasonable, sensible, moderate, proud, important, strong, Brexit has shown we're not who we thought. And this realization has provoked a profound and pervasive crisis. Yes. Well, that's true. That is that's that's super true. But it, it, it's it's critically important. This. I mean, the politicians of the forties and fifties will always be talking about, you know, our country and its destiny and where we're going to go. They had they had sort of long term thought. They tried to integrate people's. You know, we won the war. We are great people. Let's move on. This just doesn't. It's not done. Except in totally surreal crap ways like you know, you know we defeated you know, Gavin Williamson's style of puns against Russia one of our great supporters was um, David Hanney and John Kerr mm, two great yeah. people of yeah. this place Yeah, and you know they entered the foreign office just at the end of the Eden period yeah. where everybody hated Europe and they thought the empire was the thing and they were you know they were they were champions of this, and they they actually practiced power. Yeah. And to see them now still alive, yeah. looking at their great experiment in tatters, yeah. at the hands of ignoramuses, yeah, it's a tragedy to behold. Really, it's like God. I am um, at the weekend. I was at a birthday party for one of my friends. Oh yeah. And um, met somebody I hadn't seen for a few years. Um, somebody I was at college with, and she's going off for. Uh, six weeks to be um, uh, standing Governor General of Pitcairn Island. What a great job! I'm really jealous. <laughs> I mean, I'm really. I mean, seriously, it takes it takes a week to get there, yeah. and when you get there, you get to wear the full on. You know. Oh yeah. So yeah. No, that. But you'd be still being ordered by the Foreign Office to be selling as much innovative jam as you possibly can. Um, you what? Know. Yeah, Pitcairn Island. Wow. Anyway, listen, um, look, we, sh- we, we should segue into um, Change UK because we're talking a lot about issues that, no doubt, um, again, to put words in your mouth, prompted you to make this dramatic move uh, and quit the Tory party. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of us tried after the referendum to get to the Nicky Morgans, the Damien Greens of this world and say, look, guys, do not give up, you know, because <clears throat> they are passionate pro-Europeans. Mm. This was a disaster for them. And then I saw the defeat at the heart of it all when uh, Nicholas Soames mm. came up to the Tory reform group summer reception and says, it's all over. We just have to accept and get on with it, says the Churchill's grandson knowing full well that this was a disaster for British power in the world. And having stood as a Tory party, party candidate twice, I know the fear these people have of their rabid constituency association. Mm. And uh, they want a quiet life. 
And now, of course, they'll be surrounded by the whole social media battle against individuals who hold positions in the Conservative Party different to their membership. Mm. Um, and I saw the fight had gone out of these people. Yeah. They kind of never fought hard enough. They didn't know enough. Mm. They were always out foxing out, flanked by you know, the Bill Cashers of this world in the 90s to when I was here with the Conservative MEPs, you know, the people like Chris Eaton-Harris and Dan Hannon, you know, were far sharper, smoother operators. They had connections with the American think tanks they would deploy out here. Meanwhile, you had Malcolm Harbour saying, well, let's all get on with each other and do the mm. job that we're here for. So the Tory party has palpably lost the battle as to whether to be an English nationalist party or a compassionate international conservative party. And it did so in the most ugly, horrible, mm. deceptive, supine way you ever did see. Mm. Voting for Article 50. I mean, Ken, love him. He voted against Article 50 and then suddenly he's accepted the referendum was a word doomed to leave the European Union, he said. You know, that's not statesmanship. No. Meanwhile, you know Anna Subri, who voted for the Article 50 uh, process because she felt she had to deliver the will of the people and no doubt was being hugely pressurised by the whips. As to say, that's enough. And what I hear when I speak to businesses that I'm advising is there is just such now finally contempt for the political parties as they stand right now. And if the people have recognised that these are not fit for purpose, there needs to be a change. But in these, you know, between 1922 and 1924, the collapse of the, lay, the Liberal Party, you had three general elections. The Conservative Party went from being a free trade party to a protectionist party. You had all this going on. Mm. And that was just after the First World War. So this is what's going on now. Mm. And we should understand it rather than hate it. I mean, it, it's Brexit that's brought all this on, but it kind of would have done anyway. And so I think we're in a really lucky position right now because the centre, so incensed by the incompetence that's gone on and the failure of the Labour Party to capitalise on that, yeah. um, it's, it's just slowly but surely looking at a way out. It's happened all over Europe. Look at, look at Spain today. Yeah. Look at Macron. You know, identity politics is sh a scene shifting the class-based 19th century political parties. <clears throat> yeah. And this is what we're seeing. But then how, how... Okay, I accept that. But the problem that you've got in the UK is that you have this <clears throat> sort of resilience, but not in a positive way, that you have this... Um, unshiftable stasis that comes from the first part of the post system and from so how, how is I mean you you clearly looked at this and thought no no this can change so what what convinced you to think you know we could we could do this there there are two big nuclear attacks or explosions that could take place in the parties in the conservative party after demolition in the may elections could say either from the 1922 committee or you know hundreds of constituencies says you should get rid of this woman and she is dragged kicking and streaming out of number 10 because if she can't get anything through there's no rationale for her to be there 
better to get a leadership election open, open over by the conference period then you get your man in charge. If it is a hard Brexit, Boris, which it will be, then you have 20 or 30 MPs defecting from the Conservative sure? Party to the Change UK. They have already been on record. They've voted against no deal. A smaller number have voted for a referendum. Do you want to be the midwife for an English Nationalist Party that you just, just don't agree with at all? Um, and it's it's a terrible life, you know. Not all of them are looking for their eighty thousand a year. I mean, it really is not pleasant at the moment. No. Meanwhile, Labour Party. We shall see tomorrow. And you know, the worst thing that might happen if they get it wrong on the NEC tomorrow is that you could have, you know, somebody like Adonis resigning his candidacy. Mm. Uh, you know, in, a, in a less worst case scenario but in a worst case scenario you have Tom Watson revolting after this decision mm. and so it doesn't take much for a scene to shift quickly mm. Mm. chances are that it won't mm. but then even if it goes a normal way then you have a vote of no confidence in the government it loses uh, Jeremy Corbyn can put together a SNP Lib Dem government which <clears throat> either endorses a referendum or revokes Brexit, I think again, or has a general election which he won't win. Mm. So there is no route map out to you know um, completing Article Fifty, and we're out of the European Union. It's just it's it's just it's it's a Greek story. It's it's extraordinary what's happening there. <sighs> I, I, I see. I see the. I see the logic. That leads us to a situation where basically none of the above happens. What I don't see is the logic that then leads to rebirth, recalibration, reconfiguration, allowing us to deliver UK reform and allowing us to deliver um, the, the, the kind of constitutional shift that we need in order oh, to be yeah. able to... This ain't going to be easy. I mean, it's interesting, people forget, you know, it's like in major crises like the English Civil War, where we think that the country was pitted man for man against, um, you know, the, the king or in favour of parliament, is that actually most people thought the war should have ended immediately and let's just get, let's put the king back in parliament, let's just have a bit more power in parliament, let's just get on mm. with it. Instead, we have the king's head off, a republic, dictatorship. And I think, I think the problem we have here... Yay. Is, uh, the, I, I compare it to Kerensky, nineteen seventeen. You know, he's, he's a social revolutionary. You know, he's, he's really he's, he's 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 left field, but you no, know, some other even crazier revolutionary. So who's Kerensky in this scenario? Um, <laughs> and who Kerensky and who's is May, I think because so who's, who's, who's Lenin? Uh, <laughs> and I think Lenin is, Lenin is Lenin is Boris. Christ, but. And, and, you know, they're educated by Bannon to think of those terms. You know, these ugly ducks, ducklings like David Campbell <laughs> Bannerman and Ian Duncan Smith and, you know, Dan Hannon, who were being pilloried in the media 15 years ago for their strange views, and were having to def they were on the defensive all the time. And then they went to see the guru, um, you know, Bannon, and we can make white swans out of your ugly ducklings. All you have to do is say what you want to say. There's an audience out there who wants provocation. The press will be behind you. Uh, never explain. Mm. 
And, you know, it was like, it, 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 it was fantastic. It was a drug for these people. Yeah. But, you know, I think that the tensions here are unbridgeable. Mm. If that's not a stupid mixed metaphor. Uh, so, hmm. And people are not talking to each other. Conservative Party is split socially. It is the referendum on a grand political scale. Yeah. So you you have taken you, you you've taken the jump. You've taken the leap. You, you, you've said to yourself, "Up oh, with this, I will not put. Uh, I need to make a move." Now, have you made? No. You, you're you told me before we started recording that. Um, so just to be clear, you're now a candidate for the European Parliament running on the Change UK independent yeah. group <laughs> Remain Alliance yeah yeah <laughs> cuck tick ticket yeah um y- you I mean I thought about it myself um but that was a couple of weeks ago um <laughs> a couple of weeks is it it's a long it's time a, it's a very long time <laughs> now looking at it now um I'm thinking wow um I've got very little in common with these guys at all, whereas two weeks ago I thought I did. Now, I, I, I exaggerate. Um, it looks to me as if you're heading firmly in the EPP direction. Do you think that's fair? Has that, has that discussion even happened no, yet? No. Look, this is one of the most exciting things about this, for anybody who's involved themselves in political parties in the past, is this is just completely fresh. And, you know, these are good people who've been fed up and they want to do something. Mm. I thought getting Gavin Esler was a was a smart move. Actually, mm. I mean, his mm. speech was written. Yes, well. it was. It was. It was impressive. Yeah, you know, with one exception that we'll come to. <laughs> All right, but go on. Yeah, and I think you know, it's a desperately difficult situation. They're not prepared. They couldn't form a unified alliance in time for the mm. European elections. Anyway, uh, equally, let's frank. Let's be frank about it. You know, they're ambitious, and mm. they do see a situation where there are. You know, there are opportunities potentially coming up with the collapses that I describe. Where, you know, remember that people, often the Tories and the Labour Party, wouldn't in any way go to the Lib Dems. For them, their tribalism is a negative for the Lib Dems. They want something new. But what I do think they need is a very strong anti Farage, pro Europe message, modern. I think they've got some great people. I think Heidi Allen, you know, comes across as a real person. Gavin Esler is evidently real and passionate. But um, if they were, I think there's too much of, you know, we've been MPs for a lot of years and this is the game we know. And not enough of, actually, we've got to fight and we've got to be insurgents and we've got to go, our enemy is Farage. Hmm. And there needs to be more of that. Yeah, you know, I mean, okay. So look, two, so two duff notes that struck me quite forcefully last over the last week that that worried me. Um, one was Heidi Allen saying that a no deal has to be on a referendum ballot. Yeah, which I think is just—I think that's irresponsible. I just yeah. think that, and she retracted that subsequently. Okay, or right. said it was a misinterpretation. We're listening. We, we're on the Cotswold whiskey. Steve would Steve would not approve, but Steve isn't here, so 
Oh, shit. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the other thing that um, bothers me more because it's my um, it, it's, it's my trigger is um, Gavin Esler in his in his otherwise fantastic speech um, said, you know, what I want to do is I want to remain in reform. So, <clears throat> so I, I've um, again, this will be this won't be news to anybody listening who, who's, who's listened to any of our previous stuff. But I, I, um, I have a real issue with remain and reform because remain and reform uh, in the Brexit context always means reforming the EU. It means we'll remain and then we'll deal with all the reasons why people voted to leave by reforming the EU. So yeah. I've got sort of two problems with this. You know, one is that. People didn't vote leave because of problems with the EU. People voted leave because of problems with the UK. Right? Yes. That's okay. And the second one is, if you want to reform the EU, the way to reform the EU is not to throw the mother of all hissy fits, <clears throat> shit all over the bed, leave the EU to sort of go and take that bed linen and clean it, and then you know, and then you turn around and say, right, okay, well, you know, we will deign to come back and and be part of you lot if. You do think, X, Y, and Z. I, I think that whole approach died in 2016. The approach is, you know, of um, being hostile to the EU, extracting um, transactional advantages, hmm. and failing to give a lead. But who's going to tell the UK? That, well, because it sounds as if even Change UK is still sort of no, signed well, you, up to you, this. You can interpret the reform as being arrogant, but... The Esla speech said we want to uh, we want to remain in the European Union and fix Britain. And my view is that the reform that I would like to be a part of is taking really um, imaginative solutions to the. You know, for example, I would really like to explore the universal basic income. So, at the EU level or the UK level? At the UK level, I would really like to explore. You know the battle that Macron has tried to forge is that we can be, we have to be, powerful Europeans. I say to people, I said, look, I say to them two questions. Like one, we could talk until we're blue in the face about customs unions and all that. The the world in fifty years' time is it going to be run by big global trading blocks making the rules? by which you can trade, or is it going to be run by nimble Singapore countries who are effectively undercutting the trading blocks? Go away and decide that. For me, it's simple. It's going to be just like Europe was in 1914. We're going to have big power blocks working out. If you do that, you've got to be part of Europe. Yeah. And secondly, who's on your side? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> Putin, banks, the rest of them, what possible reason would you support yeah. these people? Yeah. Now, problem is nobody asks a second question, which is, you know, what's in it for Putin? What's in it for the rest of them? So, with my friend, who's you know, he is an MP and he's been a minister and he's, he wants to do well, and he is struck by the declinism again in the political establishment. And their failure to pull the levers of power that, because of arrogance. And I think that Change UK... I mean, see, the thing is, Jane, these people don't know anything about Europe. The curious thing is, we want to be pro-Europeans, 
But in the main, ask them about Dehont mechanisms and the rest of it, and they'll be clueless. But when, when we talk about these people, you mean? We're talking about everybody in the political mm. establishment. Um, and you mentioned just a second ago. Well, we're all experts in the Dehont system. <laughs> but would, would Change UK go after the EPP? They wouldn't even know yet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you know. Well, no, do you really? Wouldn't they? No, because uh, you know, the arrangement. I mean, old day would be their their place of reference. I would suggest. You think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I assumed. But but then you do have people who you know they've got friends like Richard Corbyn who'll be sitting mm. in the socialist group yeah. and they're going, oh, so this is really tricky. But the point they have to do at the moment is just this, is just create a space for groups of people who are not woolly in their hatred of what Farage stands for, but are also positive internationalists who want to, you know, do stuff in Europe. <clears throat> the fact that they've been, you know, lions led by donkeys has never been a more appropriate phrase mm. in this no, for sure. in history. No, for sure, for sure, absolutely. So, okay, so... Um, so look, okay, so we've got um, we've got three sets of... Well, we've got potentially three sets of elections coming up at the various tiers of my longed-for but non-existent federal Britain. <laughs> and we've got our local, we've got our European, and then potentially we have our national elections. So, um, obviously... Tig's not running local, locally. Mm. Um, Tig is running at the European level on a platform that I'm not quite sure I've seen. Well, its basic message is um, referendum and remain. Right, okay. Referendum with remain on the ballot. Yeah, and supporting but potentially remain. Potentially also, yeah, and supporting remain, okay. And then, speaking, you know, so you, you're somebody who has obviously got an interest in national politics, wanted to be a national MP, has, has, has long been engaged in that. How do you see, I mean, say you don't get elected as a European Member of Parliament, say, say you wanted to be considered for Westminster, again, I'm putting all sorts of words yeah. in there. How, how where, where, do, where does TIG go from here? to being present in Westminster? Well, <clears throat> the party will have to be lucky. And it will have to take advantages from the circumstances I mentioned earlier on. Tory MPs defecting, Labour MPs defecting. It has to get momentum. It has to get momentum which is not necessarily under its control. Yeah. And that's just politics and history. Mm. You're either lucky or you're not. Secondly... The question is what happens with the two main parties. And we've already talked about the Tory party. I think they're going to go into an English nationalist hard Brexit mm. position. The Labour Party obviously should be backing a referendum and remain to win these European election hands <laughs> down and therefore create the momentum <laughs> to take them into a general election. And, and, you know, when I listen to people like Stephen Kinnock, who is a nice man, yes. and... You know, really should know better. Yeah. Uh, and this idea that it will never be, it won't be, it will be divisive, not decisive, which is the latest uh, mm. slogan from those who don't want a referendum. 
Frankly, there shouldn't be a referendum. The parliament should revoke Article 15. Yes, yes, yes. That's, <laughs> um, that, yes but should, they but... are so lacking mm. in confidence of their position. Mm. So, mm. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Labour Party person, and, and you know, Labour MPs have left the party because they don't think it has the ability to transform. Uh, if you think of Corbyn as a cipher, mm. then who, what are they, you know, qui bono? Mm. Apparently John MacDonald moves towards the Keir Starmer position of referendum because he understands the electoral advantages of it. But how powerful then is Len, McCosk- Len McCluskey and Seamus Mill mm. to resist all temptation Mm. to take electoral advantage to do a socialist Britain they could do mm. anywhere mm. Mm. You know, we shall see in the next 24 oh, hours oh okay yeah well I wouldn't hold out an awful lot of hope <laughs> based on well, what we've seen over the last couple of years but, it's yeah. it's it's incredibly unimaginative I mean it was the Israeli who as a died in the war aristocratic conservative or representative of that party supported the 1867 Electoral Reform Act, which mm. gave power to working classes and therefore mm. secured the Tory party. I mean, he was imaginative. Mm. Well, look, okay, look, I think um, we we could keep. We are getting increasingly drunk. Um, We're natural. Well, this anyway. is very good. It's really not bad, is it? See, it's really not too shabby at all. Look at it. It's uh, where was it from again? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Um, was it? Well, I thought it was Warwickshire. Is it Warwickshire? See, yeah, here you go. Look, the question really is: Warwickshire, Shipston on Shipston on Stour. Will you know the Cotswolds look at this and they go? And I think they now are so fed up with this, they probably expect that we'll stay in forever. The product of England, prominently labelled yeah. product of England. I don't know. Look, um, uh, Peter, this is uh, look. Let, um, I think I'll, I think we've talked about pretty much everything that I wanted to talk about, but not in as much detail as I would like because um, there's so much to talk about. This is such an interesting um, subject, and but it's also super depressing. Look, um, I think we should move to lie of the week because I want to go for something to eat. Okay. <laughs> lie of the week to me has got to be really contemporary, and that was the gorgeous look at Ian Duncan Smith and Pascal Lamy today. <laughs> And this just demonstrates what has happened throughout my experience in this. And I, you know, I looked up to the gods of British media, the Dimblebees, etc. And I suddenly, I didn't realise that actually they knew jack shit about very much. It's incredible, isn't it? And <laughs> you had Femi up against yeah. uh, um, Richard, Richard Madeley. And you go, <laughs> what was he on? But he was like, yeah, but... M- a lot of people don't think that the customs union would be leaving the EU. And Femi's like, yeah, but it would. Yes. Yeah, but a lot of people don't think that. Yeah, they would be wrong. You would but be it, wrong, Richard. But it would. Yes. And then we had this moment today where it's just like, as Enoch Powell said, dogs going back to its vomit. There's IDS. Yeah. And they've all been told to do this, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Just say alternative arrangements, perfect funding. Tusk offered it a while ago, things like that. And then you have Pascal Lamy, the man who knows all about it, just going unicorn. 
Do you know? So okay, so no, no lie. This was also my lie of the week. So I'm, I'm this showing. I'm showing oh, this, this was your lie. No, this was my lie of the week. Ah. So we, we, we've both hit on exactly oh, the same it. one. So, um, so what happened was it was on Politics Live, um, and um, as part of a panel discussion, there was a dis- um, both Pascal Lamy. So Pascal Lamy, former EU Trade Commissioner, former Head of Staff, Chief of Staff of Jacques Delors, but also former Head of the WTO, Secretary General of the WTO. Um, was in discussion with Ian Duncan Smith. And this was an incredible exchange of views where um, Pascal Lamy was basically schooling Ian Duncan Smith on what Thatcher saw as the advantage in the single market. And he was taking a a non-partisan position he was saying, look, it's very straightforward. If you're somebody who believes in removing trade barriers and removing barriers to, 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 to economic performance and so on, um, then it, it, it stands to reason that if you reimpose those barriers, that will then hit the economy. That, that, that's the logic. And then you've got Ian Duncan Smith coming back and saying, yes, well, um, and, and through the entire, through the entire um, conversation, as, Pierre, as Pascal Lamy is talking... Ian Duncan Smith is, is is gurning to the camera. He's like he's like he's shivering. He, he's shifting. He's fidgeting in his seat. He's rolling his eyes. He's making antic gestures, and then at the end, he ends up saying, "Yeah, well, you know what? I I exported. Um, I, mean, I I was an exporter for X many years." And then, you know, Vince Cable comes in. Vince right. Cable intervenes to say, "Hang on a second. This man." Was the head of the WTO, and you're telling him what WTO rules mean. I know. Poor old Pascal Lamy sitting there going, "Oh my god, what the fuck!" You know. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine how it must have been for these ugly ducklings to have somebody come along and says, "You can lie at will. You know that your audience doesn't know the difference between Pascal Lamy and a Swiss cheese. So, as far as you're concerned, you know you're on good ground." And. I remember standing for election in 2001 and one Tory MP had said something a little bit colourful about an ethnic minority candidate. He was gone. Cool. The political correctness shower hit him. And I think this is a fundamental reaction to that period of time and that the clever and horrible thing about it is sufficient numbers of people are so angry and don't care about shame that they're prepared to accept that partisan against another. Uh, Kate, watch disclaimer. This podcast is politically correct. Good. Um, manners. Uh, good manners, as Charles well, Cameron said. Political correctness, as far as I'm concerned, is what in another age we would simply call common courtesy. Yeah. I mean, you, just don't, you just don't be nasty. To but it's just don't be weaponized. I mean, I. Well, I mean, my mum in the opposite direction. I took, I took my mum and dad to their daily diet of the Daily Mail. I've always tried to get them off that newspaper. And in the, you know, 20 years ago, the, the headline was lurid and horrible. And now, to make it even more impactful, they underline the lurid words in the headlines. So mm. they know that people are going to flick through, but they'll get that. Mm. And but that, I mean, that, that doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make I it mean, okay. This is, what, this is what I find so astonishing. But is is that, you know, it, it's... Right, well, you know, now um, now we're all supposed to be nice to each other. Well, you know what, we're going to be nasty just because we don't agree that it's we should be nice to each other. It's astonishing that you, you, know, 
you effectively have an English culture which is being weaponized by newspapers and uh, Marc Francois style politicians. They know it, they want to have it, they want to love that credibility they get with angry people. I mean, I went to see Enoch Powell in make a speech in 1980. And what was strikingly different is Powell was cerebral. He's, mm. He had no intention to mm. rabble-rouse. Mm. <clears throat> now these people are, you know, tin pot, pound shop, power lights, who have always been lurking in the mm. Tory party throughout this period of time. Mm. And Farage's uh, twist of immigration in the late noughties uh, you know, ultimately did it for us. I went to Market Harbour. There were a lot of Polish people talking. And I was, you know, I said, you know, you're welcome here. But for the first time in my life, I saw what it could be like mm. if you're hearing a lot of these voices who are employed in a certain respects uh, at a very low uh, salary in this area, you're going to have people who are angry. Um, whether or not that is true, it is clearly whipped up. Uh, no, but this is the point. The point is, I mean, you, and, and sorry, but again, you know, I, I saw that you had a couple of Change UK candidates saying similar things. Yeah. Now, look, there is, a clear dis- there is a clear difference between saying, on the one hand, yeah, yeah, we get how these people have been instrumentalised. We get how people have had their fears and their prejudices exploited. That's one thing. It's another thing entirely to say, yeah, but you know what? We have to listen to... There's a reason why everybody hates Islam. There's a reason why we have to listen to the people that say Islam has... Yeah. No, no, is, no, you is, don't. This is absolutely a complete failure. Yeah. of all of this political class. They've never been confronted by this systemic failure of policy and they haven't got the capacity to deal with it. No. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Um, Peter, uh, I want to con- continue this over dinner. Let's go. I think, um, I think uh, we'll, we'll have to leave it to listeners' imaginations too. Um, extrapolate from where we are now uh, it might to where be we will be after a few more glasses of whatever. Mm. Uh, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. This has been super, uh, super interesting. I've enjoyed it. I don't, you know, we'll see whether we get the, the same number of listeners as we do when we have Steve on board. Probably not. Steve's... Uh, rockstar. He's a rockstar. Yeah. He is a rockstar. He is literally a rockstar. Um, but thank you very much indeed pleasure sorry it's taken so long to have you on actually Um, but it might not be the last time great stuff we'll be talking about this word forever it's uh, it's the waiting for Godot of our time yeah I I feel very uh, conflicted about my my role in if I were you in in birthing this monster (laughs) I'm optimistic. I think there are, you know, we've had a perfect storm. This was like, you know, after the 2012 Olympics where everything went right. And P.G. Woodhouse once said, um, when you're walking down Piccadilly thinking how wonderful life is and whistling in the air, then fate is laying a banana skin in front of your next step. And he would have been leave, wouldn't he? 
<laughs> no. I love him. I love him. I, I, I love him, but he would have been leaving. I don't think so. I think so. He lived in France all his life. Spoke what, because, right? be, because yeah. yes, you know, Nigel Farage. Was, off, off mic is talking about right, Spode. Really. Yeah, I know. Spode but, is Nigel. It's yeah. wonderful. Well, it's true, but he still would have been. I think he would have been. Wow. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right. Well, um, that wraps it up. Thank you very much. Um, and we'll be back next week, hopefully, with. St- oh, next week um, is our um, is Europe Day. It is. And here's your book. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. We, we've also forgotten to plug you. We talked about it, and I'm now going to talk about it. Published by IB Taurus. That's IBTaurus.com. Bloomsbury Publishing. Oh, is it? Oh, sorry. Um, what next? Question mark. Britain's Future in Europe by Peter Wilding. Please go out and buy his book. Thank you. I've just been given it. Yeah. Right. Thanks very much. Natural loss, the